Doug Levin is the first to admit he's been extremely lucky in his career. The teachers, mentors, jobs, and serendipitous opportunities that have come his way have helped shape his remarkable professional journey and define his roles as scientist, pitchman, teacher, and inventor. In this episode, Doug takes us on a tour of his 30-plus years in water science with stories, humor, and some candid advice on how to consult, teach, and push for progress through collaboration and innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Aquapod, where we share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor with In-Situ. I'm Eric Robinson, In-Situ's Application Development Manager for Surface Water. And our guest today is Doug Levin, and honestly, we could spend the better part of an hour just introducing him. During his many years working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration and other government agencies, private sector firms, and academic institutions, he has traveled the world exploring and monitoring marine environments using a broad range of seafloor mapping systems, including AUVs, ROVs, and any number of water quality mapping systems and acoustic Doppler current profilers. From oil seep detections off Cartagena to cable route selections in the Gulf of Mexico, the Aleutians, and the Mediterranean. From shipwreck imaging in Thunder Bay to LIDAR mapping of the ice sheets in Iceland and Greenland, Levin has paired scientific inquiry with practical experience to devise and execute a mind-boggling array of projects and pursuits. In his current role as Chief Innovation Officer for the Center for Environment and Society at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, Doug connects students with water through academics, technology, culture, recreation, and special projects. Doug, welcome to Aquapod. Thank you. That was a great introduction, but I don't know if you were talking about me or not. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to talk about. It's very exciting. It really is. (laughs) And we were thinking that a good place to start would be at the beginning, because we just have a lot of ground to cover, and it's going to be a fun conversation. But maybe you can just kind of kick things off for us by telling us a little bit about how you got into um, this line of work and how the story started. Well, it's kind of ridiculous, but I grew up on a boat with my dad and it was a cabin cruiser, sport fisherman, and we'd be fishing all the time. And my dad had a worse sense of humor than I do. And he would point to the water. Usually we'd be looking for bluefish uh, rising to the surface and crashing. And he would say, look over there, look over there. What do you see? What do you see? And I said, dad, I can't see anything. It's underwater. He would go, oh yeah, it's underwater. Sorry. And this went through my whole childhood. And I vowed that one day, one day I would know what's underwater and I'd be able to tell him. So that sort of embarked me on uh, marine biology was my first thing. We were doing um, diving in the Virgin Islands with these hookahs, these these compressors that were in inner tubes, went to a 25 foot hose. And that's how I dove in the Virgin Islands. That's what my first uh, getting in trouble with dad was, was because I would dive and try to tie that little uh, air hookah hose into different knots. Um, but but that was my introduction to underwater stuff and and it just hooked me and so I did like every kid wanted to I went and to get my degree in marine biology but the last course I took was tropical marine geology with Dr. Dennis Hubbard and it just blew my mind how easy and how cool geology was because you could do go anywhere in the world and look at the ground and look underwater and know how it started. So 
to the chagrin of my biology professor at Fairleigh Dickinson, my senior thesis was geology related. Oh, wow. Which became my first publication, actually, Fair. with Denny Hubbard. So, and I was in Denny's office one day and he answered the phone. He said, Dr. Hubbard. And uh, when he was done, he hung up and I said, Jesus, I would love to answer the phone like that one day. And he said, use your own name. <laughs> that got you there so from from there i went and i got my master's in geology at boston university and then a phd in marine science and geology with a cost emphasis on sea level rise who knew i mean you know this is back you know back in the i graduated with my phd in 90. so why sea level rise back then well the mississippi river delta is is so prone to sea level rise because the deltas grow out, they subside, and there's sea level rise associated. So, and sea level is coming up because the delta is sinking and compacting. And at that point, you know, back then, Louisiana was losing 32 square miles of land a year by erosion and subsidence. So that's how I started, how I got into this. And from Louisiana, uh, I went to work for a company called Ocean Surveys and I started doing the geotechnical stuff. Can you talk a little bit about how that first job came to define, if it did, what you wanted to do and how you viewed your career? Well, let me back up a little bit on that, Eric, because my first, Jim Coleman was my professor at at LSU. So at one point, mid-semester, uh, Jim Coleman sends one of the students out and pulls me out of class. Uh, this is mid-semester. I- I'm only four weeks in the semester, something like that. And he says, um, I need somebody to go manage piston coring in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, can you do that? And I said, yeah. I said, when do, when do you want me to go? He goes, here's your ticket. You're leaving tonight. You have 30 minutes to get incompletes in your classes and figure out what you're doing. Wow. So I spent I spent 48 days at sea. I did 1,400 piston cores um, every mile on the mile from Brownsville, from the Delta to Brownsville, Texas, looking for oil seeps. And I walked off the boat with a map for them that showed them where the oil seeps were and they were all clustered around salt domes. And that was my, I mean, uh, here I am 24, yeah, was I 24 years old, uh, managing four geologists two from Colorado, uh, and that was my first professional consulting gig. So you were doing consulting and you made a decision at some point to transition back over to to research, things that are a little bit more academic, and and you began working with NOAA at some point. What was what drove that decision for you to, to take that, that change in your career? Well, I've, Eric, I've never been a really good academic. I love what I do. I love the science. I can write and I can solve problems. Um, but working in a college and a university really gave me a lot of freedom to learn and to deliver what I do. I mean, you know, the shtick is to, is talking to kids and I can do that. I mean, I'm the worst at, at dad jokes, you know? So, <laughs> uh, and the, the trick is, and this is what Doc Edgerton uh, said was trick talk to students and make them learn and 
trick them into learning. Right. Right. And I thought that telling stories was the best way to teach, best way to mask what you were talking about. And then they learn before, you know, before it's too late. They go, oh, damn it. You taught me something. So, Eric, getting back to going back to Noah, you know, I was at University of Maryland for five years and at University of Maryland and I was working for the Oyster Recovery Partnership and they bought me a side scan sonar. Uh, which I'd used, I learned how to use it with Doc Edgerton, who invented side scan sonar. He also invented the strobe light. And in my one of my first things in Chesapeake Bay, I was on the Maryland uh, research boat with my sonar going out under the Bay Bridge, and I see all these black squares. And this is in February. And I turned to the to the captain, Rick, uh, and I said, Ricky, Rick Younger, I said, Ricky, I said, what are these? He turns around, he goes, he says, oh, those are crab pots. And I'm from New England. I look up, there's no buoys. I said, there's no buoys. He goes, they lose them all the time. And I went, huh? So that's the beginning story. Cause I, then I called Maryland DNR. They said, don't worry, it's not a problem. And a few years later, I started working for NOAA and NOAA has a marine debris program and me and Steve Giordano wrote a proposal to the Marine Debris Program, and we started using SideScan on a on a random, there was a statistically random thing, I don't know how to say it, in the Bay, where we did transects looking for uh, crab pots all over the Maryland part of the Bay. And statistically, we found that on any given day, there are 70,000 crab pots fishing the bay at any given point hmm. and the work that we did show we put crab pots in the in the bay and we found that they got fouled to the point of unusability after two years wow and i'm in i'm in a truck with skip collier a uh, captain on the bay crabber and he says doug don't, what are you worried about crab pots for the bait goes away after two weeks and i said skip every time a fish goes in the pot Every time a crab goes in the pot and gets trapped and dies, it's bait. And he goes, oh, my God. Wow. Let's get yeah. this out. And it turns out that they continue to fish for two years. After two years, they're too fouled uh, to be attractive. And after three years, uh, um, they rot down to the rebar. But that's such a long time for just wasted sea life, yeah. right? I mean, that's and, very- and each... I think this is a low statistic, but of the 70,000 that are there, ghost pots that are there, the statistic is they're responsible for three crab deaths each, which oh. I think is low. Yeah. That's, mm. yeah. that's 210,000 crabs lost to commerce each year. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was, I'm interested to hear more about your bay work. As I, we were mentioning um, before we got started, I grew up in, uh, Maryland and spent a lot of vacations on the bay and and um, and even you know and back then save the bay was a big campaign and it sounds like your work um, with the bay was part of your work with NOAA is that correct what is that absolutely yeah uh, so. I mean, what, yeah and not just the crab pots but uh, but also um, oysters so uh-huh. the oyster recovery, the oyster recovery partnership they were putting millions and millions in to the oyster hatchery uh, and take these oysters, these spat on shell out and dumping them. 
but they would dump them out on these reefs and they wouldn't be able to relocate them to survey them, to dive on them, to see how they were doing. So I actually devised, uh, I mean, this is, this is mid 2000. So we had GPS. So I created a sonar in a suitcase, right? Where they could, they could map where the boat was going when they were dumping the shell overboard. Hmm. So they were creating very accurate GPS referenced maps of where the oyster oysters were being put in so their biologists could drop in and see how they were doing. So, but also what I did was I used so side scan sonar uh, to take an overall picture of what the oyster reefs looked like. Uh, Cause the oysters, they would use tongs to get the oysters or they would dive on them, but they had never had an overall picture of what a healthy oyster reef looked like. And my picture showed them that the oyster reefs were actually an undulatory ribbed thing. And uh, I devised with Larry Sims, who was at that point the head of the Waterman's group of the Bay, that they should restore the oyster reefs lumpy so the water going over there would feed them and clean them up. So, Doug, one of the things that I know is so challenging for a lot of people that are getting into marine science, be it biology, uh, mapping, you know, a lot of the things that you've done through your career is finding ways to pitch their projects to others outside of their organizations. This is something that you've been really successful at almost since day one. And, and I think it would be incredibly helpful if you had some thoughts as to what it is that you were able to understand at a particularly young age as to why the projects you were proposing would be of interest to others. That's a really good question, Eric. And this goes back to my dad, actually. Uh, so, so my dad, uh, his profession, he was a diamond importer in New York City. And as that his job, he imported diamonds in the diamond district where in a, you know, five square mile area, everybody was buying and selling the exact same product. So in order to be good at that, you had to be personable. You'd have to know how to sell. And my dad's, my dad, the way my dad did it, he says, he says, Doug, he says, it's a three visit thing. Um, if, if it's a cold call, you go and you introduce yourself, you talk about things. He says, and while you're in their office, he says, you look around the office, who do they have pictures of? What books are on the shelves? And and you make it not about you, but how you can help them. Sure. What is it about what they're doing that meshes with what you're doing? You are not selling yourself. You are selling a partnership. Uh-huh. Right. Right. And so that was visit number one. He said, visit number two was... You're in the air, you call them, say, I'm in the area, I'm talking to so-and-so, and somehow you you weave in a competitor. He says, I'm gonna be in your neighborhood, can I drop in and say hello? And you do. And you do that right around, right before lunchtime, you know, just in case. <laughs> Good timing. <laughs> right? And then the third time you call, say, look, I was wondering, I was listening to you and I heard this project, um, do you need any help with that? I have an idea about how we might be able to work together on that. And the third time you do that, it's old home week. Mm. 
Uh-huh. So professionally, I meet people and I see there's an opportunity and I introduce ways that we can work together. It's really no different than how I met you, Eric, or how I met Chris. Sure. You know, you guys have a great product, a great thing to offer. Have you thought about using it in this way? And how can I help you do that? So that's exactly how I, how I've approached most everything I've done. One of the things that really comes along with a lot of the grants that you've won and the work that you've done, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, and Helen brought it up in the introduction, is the work that you've done in other parts of the world and, and how you've been able to take your, your background and apply it to a lot of different locations. Um, can you give us some idea of, of how you got involved in that kind of travel and why that landed with you and why you continue to do it today? <laughs> I will. And, and I'll give you this. Um, I had a guy in Houston who was, who, who promoted me for working, doing field work. Cause I could do this. I can go on any boat anywhere and do this work. But, uh, so for example, um, I did a, in the Aleutians, um, I did a five drop to cable routing, uh, from Shimia, which is, which is the end most Aleutian Island all, all the way into Shimia. We were mapping over through 20,000 feet of water and things like that. And, uh, you know, when Phil called me and told me about this work, I said, Phil, let me give you a list of, of six other guys that could do this work and do a lot better than I do. <laughs> and, and, and Phil, Phil said, dog, he says, he says, I don't want to burst your bubble, but um, we know that you're not the best at this, but, <laughs> but, but you're the most fun to work with. There you so go. We want you. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about some of those trips, some of that work. Well, that one, um, so for, for Boeing, uh, their fiber optics are, are hard to tap into. Um, so Shimia, like I said, is a, is a is the last island in the Aleutian chain, and there's an Air Force base out there, and they wanted to put a fiber optic cable from there into Shimia so they could um, detect missile launches from Russia. So I knew more about the defense than whatever her name was at that point in time. Um, so this is kind of interesting, is that we did this, so we had to go south uh, Shimia over the Aleutian Trench, then we took a left for 28 days and then went up into up into Seward. And um, I'm coming down from the upper deck and there are these four guys hunkered around a chart on the table and they've got the latest data, the bathymetry going up through and they've got the, the angles out, the rules out. And they're, I said, what are you guys doing? They said, well, we're going right, right up a, a seamount and we've got to move we have to move the cable over here and up here and over here to recontinue. And I'm looking at it and it's proverbial because I, I happen to be eating an apple, which is of course so, <laughs> you know, and I said, really? I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how much is that detour going to cost you? And guy said, uh, back of, back of envelope. He says, uh, only about 3 million bucks. Oh. And I said, how much do I get if I tell you, you don't have to do that. <laughs> and they all look at me. They all look at me and says, you can do that? Tell me. And they said, well, how about a crab dinner and all the beer you can drink? There you go. Fine. I said, that seamount that you're playing for isn't there. 
And they yeah. said, how do you know that? Because geologically, there's no reason for a seamount to be there. I said, and what it was is, uh, so when you're doing uh, seafloor bathymetry, you have to clean the data because there are errant, some an errant noise, like, sure. like a ray hit a fish or something. Right. I said, that's not there. They went back. They found that it wasn't there. And I got a really nice crab dinner. Very nice. <laughs> so you've been able to do a lot of these trips in far flung, flung places like the Aleutians. How have you prepared yourself for the uncertainties that you run into on those trips? What do you do ahead of time to think through and, you don't, and get Eric, yourself ready? You don't. Um, you get to a point, you know, where uh, whatever happens, happens, you know, and you, you you slide, you dodge, you figure out what's going on, and you never blame somebody, you never burn bridges, right? And you always look for the solution. And if I'm wrong, I have no problems, no problems at all apologizing that I didn't see something. I'm in the Mediterranean and I'm sent there, uh, we're doing a fiber optic route from uh, Malaga in Spain, uh, all the way uh, through the opening in Nice before it heads across the Atlantic. And there are two other fiber optic cables already there and I've got to find a route, a suitable route between them. I am just an operator at this point of a new combined side scan and bathy sub-bottom system by Datasonics. Mm -hmm. And I get on the boat and I'm on the boat in the med as they're lowering the system vertically over the boat to 130 meters water depth. And I say, you know, you want to get a little way going so this thing is towing. And the chief of the project points me on my chest. And he goes, you are the operator. I am the chief. I will take care of this. I said, fine. Um, you're lowering to 130 meters. Is that your safe depth? which is the depth below that you're going to hit the bottom. He says, absolutely. That is the safe depth. Why the hell would I put it there if it wasn't? <laughs> Got it. Okay. And so I'm in the, in the data room and I'm collecting data and between lines, they do a, they do a loop and you come around and get back online. And this guy told me never to record data during the loop, which is, ridiculous because you can record data and then erase it. Sure. So, so I was recording during the loop and as we're coming around the loop, uh, the bathymetry starts doing this with seamounts. What's that? And, that action, uh, like an up and down action? Up and down. Uh -huh. And they're coming up to 80 meters depth. And remember, he told me the safe depth was 130 meters. So I have the, the winch control and I'm on it, I'm leaning out so far, I actually bent it and and it crashed, crashed, crashed and brought up the system and it was in shambles. And he came to me and he puts, again, he puts his finger on my chest and he goes, what, how did you do this? And I said, what depth did you tell me was safe? He said, again, 130 meters. I said, well, this happened at 70 meters. He goes, too bad you can't prove it. Wow. And I said, I said, oh, but I can prove because I recorded the data. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most significant challenge or challenges that you've seen and the stuff that, that you think, you know, may come up again? 
Well, they'll, you know, <clears throat> they'll all come up again. But, uh, for example, I was in Cartagena, and I was supposed to be, we're using some sub-bottom stuff to find oil seeps. And, again, it was multi-beam, so you're ma- mapping the water depth. And as we're doing the water, this is with, a, a <clears throat> again, a multi-beam. And as we're going across, I see these little wisps coming up out of the seafloor. And I, I changed the range, and the wisps were actually gas and oil coming out of the seafloor. So we did the maps, and I was able to locate where these seeps were coming out of the seafloor using multi-beam in the water column, which they normally filter out. Hmm. And so <clears throat> that was really key that I was able to map where oil was seeping out of the seafloor and they stopped doing the water column erasures so they could see that that was that was cool i guess the other one i think probably the coolest thing was being tasked with a deep during deep water horizon um i haven't talked about that yet um deep water horizon was the obviously the oil spill in the gulf of mexico i was working for the noaa's integrated ocean observing system at the time and Dr. Sam Walker was brought down there to start developing GIS products uh, for the oil map, the, the the contamination maps. And he brought me down uh, because of my science acumen and the ability to see things in the science that he thought I could help others see. So I was actually, when I first got there, he said, Doug, he said, would you please go over to the GIS portion and, and fix the the message to the president, the oh, POTUS. Wow. <laughs> and I said, I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go over and there, there's a group, there's a team there creating maps uh, for Obama at the time of the oil and where it was and what it meant, you know, the dissolved oxygen, this and that. And I'm looking at the maps and I'm going, and I'm looking at them and there's an index and there's different shapes and there's different things on the map. And I'm going, I said, what am I looking at? And somebody came in to start explaining it to me. I said, you know what? I said, what you're doing right now is you're explaining it to me. I said, we don't have time for this. Once this map is put down in front of the president, he has 30 seconds to determine what he's looking at. I said, this stops right now. We're doing, what's the most important parameter? And they said, dissolved oxygen. I said, fine, we're going to do dissolved oxygen. We're going to do red, yellow, green. We're going to traffic lights. I said, make a map and put it in front of me. And instantly you could see what's going on. So this goes up to the White House and I get a quick edict. Red is not to be used on maps. Oh. Because red defines danger. So I said, okay, orange. Okay, orange is good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that, I I was curious about that because I would think when you're dealing with an environmental catastrophe, you know, uh, such such as that spill, how that changes, obviously urgency is a factor, but are there other dynamics that shift in the work that you're doing when, when you're working in that sort of environment? Deepwater Horizon was really an honor to work on that with those with those guys. And the uh, the chief of oil spill response for Louisiana at that point 
his name was Roland Guidry. Uh, Roland actually is a dear friend. I call him Papa. Uh, Roland actually drove a boat for me when I was doing uh, looking sand mining in Louisiana. And I also looked for Cortez's treasure in Veracruz. Okay. Um, and I needed a boat driver and I hired Roland to be my boat driver in, in Mexico. So I knew Roland from way back and Roland was the chief of oil spill response for Louisiana. And when I was doing Deepwater Horizon, I got to talk with him all the time, which was a great, great reward. It also sounds like there's a lot of creativity in the work. You know, you talk about challenges and problem solving, and it sounds like it's not just, you know, you take a piece of equipment that you know how it works and you go and you do the job. Can you give us some examples, too, of, of times when you've had to, you know, be, get creative, innovate, try things, see how it worked? Um, okay, so I have a couple of teaching programs. One of them is called Aquabots. Uh, where Aquabots is an, a remotely operated vehicle, which is an underwater robot that's tethered and you and it's got a, a camera on it. And the ones that I've worked with, uh, the range is between, you know, $50,000 and $3 million, the ones I use in the Black Sea. But how do you get kids interested in doing this stuff, right? How do you bring it down to the level? So uh, back in 2000, I started to design uh remotely operated vehicles, ROVs. Uh, actually, it was called ROVs in a bucket. It turned into Aquabots. So, and what I did, I used speaker wire, I used PVC. Uh, I was having trouble finding propellers. So I went to the dollar store. Remember the, the dollar, the, the cooling fans? Yeah. Yeah. I bought, yeah, I bought a hundred of them <laughs> uh, so I could pull the propeller out of them. <clears throat> and the next year, they went, remember they went to the felt propellers? Sure. So I couldn't use them anymore. Yeah. So I'm I'm pissed. I go into my office and I turn the computer on because I got to find something. And inside the computer, there are fans. Remember muffin fans? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. So I go out to my garage and I start ripping apart a computer to pull the propellers out. I said, this is stupid. I went inside and I did a Google back when you could do Google. And I Googled muffin fans. And I found four companies in the country that imported them from China. Oh. And I did, I sent an email, info at these four companies. I'm doing underwater robotics. I need these muffin fans. I'd like to buy 50. I know your minimum purchase is 10,000. Can I just buy 50 from you? And you know, it wasn't five minutes later, I get a phone call and the guy introduces himself. He says, all you need is your address. And I start to explain the program. He said, Doug, he says, I appreciate this. All I need is your address. Three days later, I get a box of 1,200 propellers from Dick Thorgren of Thorgren Industries in Valparaiso, Indiana. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that, so I started building these underwater robots called Aquabots. I did send him a NOAA Administrator Award that I made up uh, <laughs> to thank him. I made a big plaque and I thanked him for all <laughs> That's that. That's fantastic. Um, but Aquabots, so design, build, and, and launch a working underwater robot in about an hour. And I'm still doing that now. Um, that, um, and so buoys. Yeah, buoys. I mean, how do, you, how, how do you get a kid interested in buoys? And so this is another 
long story short, but I'm in a NOAA staff meeting and I'm told that I'm doing ink t-shirts, fish t-shirts at a, at the Waterman show. You know, you take the fish, you put ink on it, you throw it on a t-shirt. Sure. Sure. And, and I, this is the first time, and I'm not very good with this word. And I looked up to the director and I said, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. And he said, well, we pay, already paid for the space. What are you going to do? And I thought about it. And this program started in my head. I had all this PVC, for my underwater robotics. And I said, we're going to build buoys. And he goes, you'll explain that to me tomorrow. So I went home and I took, PVC and I built a buoy and I had a Frisbee and I turned it upside down and I put it in my sink in the garage and it tipped over. And I went, wow, this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. So I devised a program where you design and build a buoy that holds golf balls. Okay. And I said, the world's record for a small buoy holding golf balls is 25. Help me break that record. That was my whole introduction to the kids. And a challenge the, that they embraced, I bet. <laughs> and they went, they didn't need any instructions. They went and yeah. did it and they broke world's record. Oh, that's funny. Right. And and then what I did was I had I had a portable thermometer, you know, digital that it said did air temperature and if you remember it had a, a wire that went outside to do the outdoor temperature right well i put that in the water right and i had air temperature and water temperature and that was my first observation buoy so these kids walked away from this program and i did this down in the kindergarten knowing that there are two kinds of buoys ones that mark underwater roads and ones that collect data so that's how build a buoy got started yeah, and that, they take that with them, and they've learned something. They've they've gotten hands on, and that's what can spark interest that takes them a long way. Hmm. And so that started with this little plastic buoy. Then I thought, what if I could create an observation buoy that collected all this data? And I was working with uh, Steve Morton. Uh, he's the director of the Phytoplankton Monitoring Network. He's with NOAA. And I've introduced Eric to him and he's doing work. He had a program where he would have school kids collect water quality data every two weeks at their site. And he could from that predict whether the possibility of a harmful algal bloom. And it was 20 years ago that I said, Stevie, I said, what if we created a buoy that collected the data all the time? And then you could predict when that would occur. And that's when Bob's basic observation buoys were invented. 20 years ago? Or that's when the yeah. idea came? That's mm -hmm. when the idea came. And I started doing it with Pasco, with Vernier, with all these little things. And then I started trying to do it with other stuff. And then the Chesapeake Bay buoys, uh, Helen, do you know about those, right? I don't know about those. Tell me about well, those. Well, the Chesapeake Bay buoys, they started in the mid-2000s. And they were about 150 grand a piece. Okay. Wow. That's and they're 14 feet tall. And I was, I was the first, I got a NOAA administrator award for linking this data with classrooms. Okay. Right. But the goal afterwards, these are 150,000 bucks a piece. 
how do we get that cost down so anybody can do it? And that's where Bob kicked in. My goal and what I would like to achieve is a buoy that collects and transmits water quality. And the basic is temperature, salinity, turbidity, and DO. And if we can get that buoy under six, 7,000 bucks, we're in the range. That's what Bob's are. There are so many buoy systems out there that are collecting and transmitting data. The issue is not just the data transmission, is how is the data being parsed? How is it being visualized? And that's what's that's the key. And and the question about how small these buoys can be, like what you and I have done uh, with Bob with a with a basic observation buoy, is how many of these can get out? And the more we can get out, the more data we can collect, right? The more data we can collect, the better we can understand harmful algal blooms, uh, the onset. I mean, we talk about weather and how the the high resolution of weather that we, we we expect when we dial in every morning and we listen to the radio or look at the, the news, and that same resolution of weather can be imparted on the ocean, on any water body. And why isn't it, right? Why isn't it on every weather forecast? Why isn't there a water cast? And why isn't that there? And how fishermen would, would embrace that. And fishermen are all embracing that. You know yourself even your brother, right? Going out in the water and, and our uh, echo centers can do water temperature now. Sure. So we know exactly where to fish. Why isn't this common knowledge? And why isn't this part of the daily language on radio, on TV, whatever? Why aren't we doing water casts? Well, you, you know, you things s- like that. You said something interesting in there, Doug, and I, I kind of want to dig into this a little bit further. And you talked about it previously, which is the change in in visualization, right? From a point some number of years ago where you walked off a boat with with a map of a number of sites to to where we are today. What and you've been able to see all of this evolution, right? What do you think has been the biggest shift in how we visualize and store data today? As, as it was in the past. And where do you see that going? Uh, well, you know, I have personal beliefs in this, Eric. Yeah. And the, the idea is that, and NOAA, NASA, they have what's called data warehouses. And there is data for most everything sitting in a warehouse waiting to be visualized. And <clears throat> the single point or the graphing of the data um, has been the data visualization tools have been so advanced that only advanced people can look at them and analyze the data. What we need to do is create a data visualization tool that takes the data, puts it into the traffic light colors like I did for Obama, right? And histogram into shapes that are easily discernible so you can understand and analyze it and see what's going on immediately. Mm-hmm. And we can animate this through time, not just a single moment. But, I mean, it doesn't take rocket science. I say funny because I my NASA guy is getting on my on me because they say, Doug, we're rocket scientists. You're a rock scientist. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Right. <laughs> right. But, but the idea is that you, we can take the data and make it visually easy to understand. So, I mean, the idea, the target, again, the target linguistically for speeches is actually the eighth grade. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? That's right. And so why aren't we creating this data visualization tool so people at that level can understand it? And that's what I've been trying to impress upon you for three years now. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> it's a slow row. Um, it, it is interesting, though, because it's, you know, what you're talking about, Doug, is the democratization of data and, and how we allow more people to get involved with viewing and, and understanding data and seeing what can be done with it. And to me, this, this kind of ties back to another question I have for you, which is your involvement with, with academics, be that teaching kids at, at a younger age, or if it's today, your work at Washington College. Did you just naturally fall into this or was there there's something in your head where you knew that sliding into the work of teaching was going to be a good fit for you? Well, just remember that my, my teaching level is K through gray, right? K, it doesn't K matter through level. gray? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, but so just, just a backdrop, um, in eighth grade, I was voted least likely to succeed. Oh, what an honor. Right. Um, yeah, and I was told that science science as a professional was out of the question, and it was actually suggested that that my path should be uh, music or business. And regarding music, I took piano lessons for three years, and my mother begged me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the idea of making science—I mean, science isn't a big deal. Math isn't a big deal if you teach it in the right way. And teaching, like I said, I've already said it, is about telling stories. Uh, when I started teaching geology at, at Bryant College and I opened up the textbook to volcanoes, um, volcanoes are, are really exciting, um, but not talking about them. So I, I went to Hawaii and I worked with George Walker, uh, a famous volcanologist, for two weeks. And we went all around and, and look at magma flowing into the water and I didn't get arrested that time, um, but I got a warning. <laughs> so the whole idea of teaching, Eric, um, is like talking to people. You just figure out the level and you go with it. And that's the yeah. same thing with the data visualization and the data. What's important to them? And even if you don't think they can understand it, you can have them understand it. It's how you present it. And even in teaching, I've never worried about levels because and then teaching is like running an auction you don't tell them what they're learning you ask them you ask questions and you can ask questions at every level until they start answering the questions then you know the level and then you bring it back up and you can you can drive that discussion in any direction that you want by the questions that you ask so, so Doug, before we, we get too, too far away from this, I did have something that stood out to me. You've got experience in government, research, private consulting, academics. If you were going to be able to sit down with someone getting into the field of marine surveying and science and, and, and be... In, in the path that you chose a long time ago, 
what would your advice to those people be at this point? Well, uh, it's not just my field, it's any field. And I'll tell you, if you're, let's say if, if you, even as an undergraduate, well, let's say you're in college, it doesn't have to be in college because I'm not, I'm not entirely for a college per se, but let's say that you have a path that you are interested in. And it used to be, I used to tell my students, read the classified ads, go through usajobs.gov and find the job that piques your interest. Mm-hmm. Right. Just yeah. listen, look at the words. Um, and now let's say it's, let's say you want to be a plumber. Um, do you have a plumber that you look up to? Do you have a plumber that you want to work with? Get a hold of that person, say who you are. I'd like to learn. I wonder if you have a chance, you have an opportunity for me to work with you as a, an apprentice. I mean, that's how I learned how to work on cars. I volunteered to work in a gas station, mm-hmm. you know, for half a year. Um, how did I find the people that I worked with academically? Well, I was really lucky with how I, it was actually was stupid serendipity is how I wound up with my professors. But if you wanted to, let's say you go into, you want to go to graduate school to learn what you're doing. Do your Google search and find a professor that's doing what you want to do and contact them directly. And what you do is you say, I read this, I've seen this, this is what you do. I was wondering if there's an opportunity for me to work with you. You can find exactly the person that you want to work with, approach them and in, and have it so they need you. Yes, that's great advice. Eric, did I talk about my my new venture with, with the remote control skim boards? You and I have talked about it um, a bit over the last year or so. Tell Has, us about that. Yeah, please please um, so tell us the idea the idea of of collecting data is that we can do this with autonomous vehicles, and that and we talk you talk about learning about climate and learning about every, the the atmosphere, the space, water. I mean, with with manned vehicles, it would take us again several decades to map map what we have. We only know. 10% of the ocean floor in, with any intimate detail. So we're gonna need automated systems to collect the data. Um, so that said, how do we get kids interested in doing what we do? How do we get them jazzed? How do we get them started? How do we go from K to gray with, how do we get them technically oriented? And so, especially what happened last year with the pandemic um, and losing the opportunity to do field trips. Mm. And so what I've done, and this is where I'm working closely with Eric, and this is what where this view link really is, is the opportunity. And so uh, with NASA, I'm using these skim boards and I put the AT600 underneath, uh, hooked to a view link on top. And the goal is what if I can get that data shown up on a map? And when I say data, so the AT is doing uh, water temperature, um, salinity, dissolved oxygen, and let's say turbidity. And what if that data with the view link, it's GPS rectified. So what if you can create a map as you're going along? So I've got this system hooked into a skim board, remote control, where 
I'm working and I'm actually about two weeks waited from this being coming to fruition where as you're driving it, it collects and creates a visual map of the data of the water that you're driving it through. Right. And that, and that's what's happening right now. Now, my goal is what if I can get a student to come into my computer and drive that boat from my computer and see the data it collects? What if a student can see the water body that I'm on, right? And look at it and devise how they want to run their, their buoy, their portable buoy or their Kermit it's called, right? And collect that data and visualize it. So let's say we have a pond and let's say we want to have a data of that maps of that pond's water temperature. And they can come into my computer, they can see the pond on the screen and they can drive that boat and collect the water temperature and see it posted real time on a map. And what if all of a sudden in the middle of that map, they see the water temperature go way up to 150 degrees. They look at it and they say, why? I don't know. What should we do? And that's how exploration starts. Scientific inquiry. Yes. Right. That's fantastic. So, so that's, but see, that's between the AT600 and ViewLink. That's where I see the possibilities. Doug, it's been a pleasure. It's really been wonderful to to hear the stories and to hear your passion for the work and for teaching and passing it along. And I feel inspired. <laughs> hey, if you have any questions about anything, feel free to get in touch, okay? Yeah, well, I've already learned so much. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. This is Aquapod, brought to you by In-Situ. You can find more episodes and subscribe to the podcast on our website, insitu.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please listen, share, and help us spread the word. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Eric Robinson, and Lauren Ryan, with a big assist from Josiah Holmland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field, and until then, take care out there.